Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome to episode three of the Mentor Podcast. Just quickly before you listen to the podcast, this was originally recorded as a video, and then the powers that be at Spotify and their amazing processing system for videos has rejected the video multiple times. So I've tried reformatting it to no joy. So we're stuck with audio. So I'm, I apologize for that, but uh, still hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Bye bye. Okay, and uh, welcome to episode three of the Mentor Podcast. And for the first time, we've got a bit of a, a video going on here, and we've actually got a guest for a change, rather than me ranting on for hours about things. So, uh, our guest today is Samir Banger. For those of you who don't know Samir, he is a executive solicitor, Banger Legal, based over in New South Wales. I've come to know him over the last, I suppose, a year through discussions around some of the policing issues through the um, COVID protests. And like he's done a ton of work advocacy-wise in relation to fairness through COVID and he has uh, campaigned and, and fought legal battles against mandates. And, uh, you know, I think people like him are a real sort of shining light through this kind of last couple of years. So he uh, likes to lift weights. Makes a mean curry, apparently. Hopefully, I'll taste one one day. And he loves a good suit. So, welcome to Mir. Welcome to Mentor. And uh, really, the the structure of the podcast is very much it's 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 about you telling your story. So, without further ado, maybe we start off with just tell me about you know where you were born, when it was, and like your upbringing in terms of like your family structure, things like that. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on. And look, it's great to see someone like yourself doing this podcast, especially with your background. And obviously that would be in episode one, I'm presuming, which I have to go back and listen to and catch up with this series. But as Dave said, I've known him for maybe just over a year. I've actually asked Dave to comment previously on certain videos and certain policing tactics and other tactics, other things that I've seen. And I guess even though me being a solicitor and Dave being a former, a former police officer, we do have views that are very similar on certain things. And I think we both believe in what's reasonable and fair on both sides and i think that's where we come together so it's been good it's been a good year and a bit and i'm sure many more to come and that curry's not too far away once wa relaxes a little bit more just imagine one day when you're allowed to actually leave your home state and get back to it we we'll actually meet in person how could that be <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can't believe we're even thinking we have to yeah. think about that as an issue in the first place in australia but this is a state of a state of affairs at the moment yeah. in this country so Dave, I was actually born in India, which most people won't realise. Mind you, I moved here when I was six weeks old. So I guess it's really no, apart from the literal fact of not being born here, there's not much difference. I have always lived in Sydney's West. We started off in an area called Cabramatta, which back when my parents moved was a quite low on the socio-demographic scale and was known for drugs and drug lords, effectively. Wasn't so that quite a, a quite a strong Vietnamese population in that area? Was that right? Still is, correct. Yeah, yeah. and I think a little bit in the 80s, there was a bit, there's a few Chinese there as well, mm -hmm. but now it's become even stronger in terms of Vietnamese. It, there's a little bit, there's a lot more sorry, affluence there now. It's a bit of a mix compared to what it was. I think in the late 80s, it was very much considered the, I wouldn't say drug capital, but there was a lot of drugs floating around and it, there was no mm -hmm. much money as there is now. The house values and land value there has gone up and there are people of all descriptions living there. Obviously still quite heavily Vietnamese, but what I mean is in terms of monetary background and finances. My parents moved from there to Campbelltown early on in my life and then from there to Camden. So I've been in Camden 
So Kevin Janeri and MacArthur, people don't know, I guess it's considered semi-rural, not quite, it's not rural per se, but it's definitely not Sydney proper, one of the last suburbs of Sydney, you could say. And that's where I've grown up, and that's where I, I guess I did U5 plus. I come from an Indian background, both my parents are Punjabi Indian, although my dad has a bit of Pakistani heritage before the 47 split. So most people here listening, some will know, some won't, but obviously the British played a large part in India. Mm -hmm. Not one of those sure. people that harbors any bad feelings towards the British. What happened, happened. I'm one of those people who thinks we should move on. But there's a lot, there's heavy British influence and not just Indians in our culture as well. And I think vice versa, because now if you look at England, the national dish is apparently chicken tikka masala, which definitely wasn't invented by the British from Ireland. No. No, but it's great. I mean, uh, it's good to see. Uh, I must admit, I, if yeah, about one of the only few things I miss from my original homeland is a good curry because it, it is pretty hard to get in uh, Australia. I found particularly Western Australia, so I tend to make my own. But uh, certainly, where I grew up in England, yeah, the curries were just uh, fantastic. I do miss them. I have to say, the restaurants have been much more authentic there than they are here, and yeah. you find Indian restaurants and Chinese restaurants. Restaurants are basically from any ethnicity. They're watered down and they're completely different to what they would be authentically, what they would be in their various countries. I get the reasoning behind them. And I, look, I will say it's changing now because Australians generally appreciate more flavour now, but it's a slow move. And I think it's just more probably the recent 10 or 15 years where we're seeing that change rather than just blended out sugary food. Like, for example, mm -hmm. when you get the Thai food, you order a green curry and it's usually sugar with a bit yeah. of coconut. Yeah, Milk and totally. Luckily, that is changing. But anyway, it's getting back to the point. So we grew, my parents weren't exactly wealthy. They did. They are one of those people, one of those families that came here for a better life. What I should say is my mum's side was a lot more affluent than my dad's. Uh, traditionally, females move in with males, and I guess you would say my mum left her affluent behind to be with my father, and that's where we ended up. Dad moved here. Mum came over a little bit after. My dad's actually qualified accountant mm -hmm. yet when he first came here he couldn't afford well that way he wouldn't have paid for myself and my mother as well so yeah. he would pay for the family and he went into white collar work worked at restaurants worked at Dulux paint factory for a bit and then eventually after being made redundant he went to Phil Hinton glass factory which most people may or a lot of people may know because yeah. a lot of the glassing for cars are made by those guys as well so where my upbringing comes from that and I guess with that financial it wouldn't look i didn't feel the struggle because i was too small my parents mm -hmm. definitely did i grew up with a family that was very much sensible well they tried to be sensible with money and we were not allowed to spend money for no reason we had mm -hmm. to i won't say put forward a business plan but we had to <laughs> prove to our parents why anything yep. would why we should purchase anything and why we should spend substantial sums of money yep. and by no means does that mean they didn't spend money on us, they didn't. It just wasn't as openly spent as I guess some kids have it these days. And I think this is probably not just me, this is a generational thing as well. It's it's cultural and generational. But a lot of values that I've learned from what I now harbor or now have are from my parents in those times. Mm, totally. Knowing that money didn't just grow on trees, it was tight and you had to spend them the right way. It's, you know, it's obvious. It's obviously good to know that you've got access to money and be able to spend a bit more freely. But yeah. what it does also do is make you value what you have. And what I find is 
being able to face adversity when you don't have that same amount of substance. Like, yeah, I think that, like, sorry, you go, Dave. So I was thinking people who come countries which, which, you know, have a higher level of poverty, I just think, you know, they, they don't take things for granted the way that people who've lived in affluent countries do. And, um, you know, certainly, you know, growing up in England and work, I worked in London for probably about 10 years of my career uh, in really ethnically diverse places. And you just see that. You see people and like the Indian population in England have literally taken over many areas of industry just through pure bloody hard work. And uh, it's a bit of a, I guess it's a, uh, it's a cliche, but the, you know, people in, in England, they say, oh, yeah, all the corner shops now, they're all run by you know, Indians, et cetera. And the reason for that is because they're prepared to work for 17 hours a day to build a business, and the traditional Anglo-Saxon English aren't. So that's why they've done it. They've done it on hard work. And I've got a huge amount of respect for people who've come from, you know, I'm not, having done it myself, moved from one side of the world to the other, it's hard work. And certainly moving from somewhere like India to Australia, I mean, there must be a huge contrast for your parents to arrive in a country which is very, very different. Yeah, look, and my dad would have felt it the most. So we're same Punjabi, we're Sikhs as well. So my dad wore a turban, he still does mm-hmm. actually. He was advised to cut his hair when he first got here because he yeah. struggled a little bit. He didn't do it immediately, but eventually he did, from what I understand. And then he regretted it and grew his hair back and put his turban back on. Good on but him. there was that period of it, which, yeah, 100%. And I, I respect that a lot from him, and especially knowing now, because my brother's young. Although he had a few struggles himself with the turban when he was younger, being in Camden, he was the odd one out. So he eventually felt it and he got hit. I did. And I have to say this as much as I would have got some things here and there for not being white, so to speak, or not fitting in as well. I did not get the brunt of it like my brother did and like my dad did. They would have copped it. I was very protective of my brother back then because obviously that's just. What I learned very quickly is if you don't stand up for yourself, if you don't put an end to it, they will not stop and they will keep coming after you. It's unfortunate because I don't condone violence in schools and nor do I want it, but sometimes you just really have to put your foot down. And it doesn't have to be violent, I'm not saying that, but you really have to put your foot down and basically take a stand because if you don't, you get done. So that 100%. My mum, her English wasn't great. It's improved a lot now. At that time, it wasn't good. Luckily, my dad studied in a school where it was an English medium school, as I say, in India. The curriculum was based on English and based in English. So he did know English before he came over. And obviously, having the accounting degree, you must have some grasp of English mm-hmm. to study tertiary education there anyway. So that was good. But the amount of adversity he would have faced, and first generation, Lebanese, Indians, Italians, you would have faced, similar, like, I mean, something as well coming over from the UK. I just find that. In Australia, even though it is a lucky country, or was, or however you want to classify it, doesn't matter. First generation arrivals to Australia do face issues, some a little bit different than others, but it's never been an easy journey. It's get look, it's probably easier now than it would have been in 1960, 1950, sure. but it's not an easy place to come. It's Especially, weird. I mean, my, my experience, you know, it pales into insignificance against people who've come from other parts of the world, you know, who look differently, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I experienced, you know, racism, which is bizarre for me to say that. 
coming to Australia because, like, you know, no one had never told me to fuck off and go home, you pommy twat, you know. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. and like, I had, I had conversations with people saying, you know, you realize that, you know, everybody you use here has come from somewhere else, you know, everybody, you know, even if you go back to uh, the, the, the traditional owners, they came from, they believe, somewhere in Indonesia, I think it's 80,000 years ago. So we've all come from somewhere else. And even if you've been in Australia for 100 years, your family still came from somewhere else. So you're only a few generations away from being the same, but we still have that. And I think Australia, with its isolation from the rest of the world, sometimes that's that's the dark side of it. And I think there's a, there is a still a lot of casual racism in Australia. And uh, you know, I think it's gradually changing, and with the younger generations are just not as as racist as the older generations, and that is changing. But it's it's still a constant thing that I think happens. And I guess because you were in a suburb which was quite ethnically diverse, that probably maybe softened the, the blow a little bit. If you'd been in a more, I guess, you know, white suburb, it could have been, you know, a lot worse for you guys. Oh, exactly the opposite, actually. We were in a suburb oh. that wasn't ethnically diverse. So this oh, was, okay. So we pushed out of Sydney. So generally speaking in Sydney, so in Melbourne, for example, Melbourne's known to be more multicultural. And right. Sydney, Melbourne was a multicultural hub. Sydney has pockets of or the suburbs that are very ethnically uh, yep. diverse, I should say. Blacktown has a number of Indians, but there's a few African people there. You And look, this is very generic, a very yeah. general, because obviously even if you go to Camden now, there's going to be Africans, Lebanese, people of African origin, Lebanese origin, Indian origin, and whatnot. But if you look at Camden at that point, there were very few Indians. There was our local doctor, who was a South Indian gentleman. He'd been there for a number mm -hmm. of years, but I think being a doctor, he was very very well respected and known. Yep. My parents would have been the first after him, non-Indians, or there might have been wow. a few more sporadically spread around. But then you'd go to areas, like I said, Blacktown and Parramatta, that were much more ethnically diverse. Liverpool, for example, is probably about 30 minutes from where I am. Yep. And I think you may not know some of these areas, but some people listening may, but there are areas that had a lot more multicultural. Camden yep. wasn't one of those. It's okay. very different now to when we started Again, yep. there is now, or there are people of all ethnic backgrounds now. At that point, there wasn't. So one of the reasons my parents chose that, well, I go back a little bit, is my dad had an accident. And I don't know how far I should go with this, but anyway, my dad had an accident at work. Basically, a forklift ran into him and crushed him, killed him, yeah. and he was out of work for a while. He was probably after that he decided he can't. I don't know because this was a, just a decision on his end or probably his health as well. I don't know. Death day, it's his health. We don't speak about it too much, but anymore. But a decision was made that he's not going to go back into that type of work. He yeah. then, that's when he started opened up his first restaurant, as in properly, mm -hmm. and that's when he started taking the rest, like the restaurant business and hospitality seriously. Yeah. He had a bit of a background with it previously, but now he decided that's what I have to do. And I also don't think once you've been hit by or crushed by a forklift, I guess he probably wasn't able to stand for long periods. I mean, yeah. he still dances a bit, but. He doesn't have the back that he once used to have. And I guess that's yeah, okay. just a part and parcel of the injury. So that's how we got to the restaurant business. He then decided Camden was a good area because mm -hmm. at that point there was no other Indian restaurants. I think there's a Chinese right, restaurant, yep. Italian restaurant, of course. Uh, but that was about it. There's no other Indian restaurant. So he for him of the niche market, which look, it worked. You had both sides. You had the people who will love the fact there's a new Indian restaurant. And I know we also, for a fact, we had people that didn't think an Indian restaurant should have existed yeah. in Camden. That's for sure as well. But 
you take the good with the bad and don't get me wrong there was there's stuff said here and there but yeah. nothing dramatic it wasn't well, like i said it wasn't the 50s or the 60s so that's where the restaurant business started and eventually grew that to opened a couple of more restaurants had three for a bit downscale to two ran two for a number of years before we moved down to one so a lot of my early life was actually working in that restaurant i think i worked there from the age of 10. And just so people realize there's actually no minimum age for working in new south wales there really isn't i remember doing a uh, a paper on this before in zimbabwe it's like there's a minimum age of 14 zimbabwe yeah. places whereas in australia and sydney new south wales there was no minimum age for working yeah. providing it didn't impact just full hours and i could be that could have changed i'm not sure i think it's 14 it's 14 in western australia i remember from when my kids started working but yeah Family business doesn't yeah. count anyway, does it? <laughs> no, well, well, that's it. And I guess with well, the other thing is, in practicality, it's one thing anyway, because in New South Wales, you're not likely to get hired if no. you're less than 14. No. But in a family business, no one actually, you're not getting hired. <laughs> you're doing what you need to do. That's part of your life, so you'll do it. So I guess that's the other place I learned the value of money and just learn yeah. to deal with people and speak to people. Although I probably wouldn't have been the best way to walking around at 11, but heck, I could deal with till. And at least yeah. my parents know no one was taking a few bob out of the till every now and again because that's a common yeah. thing in restaurants and hospitality. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, for sure, definitely. And like, how was your relationship with your with your dad growing up? Were you close? I mean, so you're you're the oldest son, is that correct? Correct. So my brother's three years younger than me, although we have very different lifestyles and we're very different thinkers. So, look, my relationship with my dad's pretty good. Now we had a more traditional life or household at that point because my mum stayed home, dad worked, so that yep. was more traditional. Yep. And that did change how and it changed dramatically with the reference because basically my dad took over one, mum took over the other, and they'd obviously sometimes swap, but they both started working and worked right. really hard. But for the first how many years would it have been? Look, I'm I'm guessing, but I think for the first five years or six years, it would have been mum at home when my dad worked for the first two or three years, he had to go away. He worked in Canberra as well as mm -hmm. Sydney because he had a couple of jobs which he had to do to pay the bills. So yeah. he would be home maybe a Sunday, every second Sunday he'd be home, which I can't imagine the toll that would have taken on my mum and my dad at that point, especially when yeah. I was his first child and quite young. But he did what he needed to do as first generation migrants do. So, relationship from what I recall was quite good when he was there and look, I look back on it now and I know why he did what he did. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, I would never, I wouldn't change a thing because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be where we are. And what I've realized in life is, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, doesn't matter what life throws at you, you have to be ready to adjust to it and work with it because if you don't, you're gonna end up nowhere. But go after that, it was, look, my dad was very authoritarian, I will say that, mm -hmm. as I said, when it comes to money spending like that, uh, we basically were given what he said was right. We would have to ask, and this is not improper, but we'd have to ask when we wanted something. If he just said no, he said no, that was it. Yeah. I will say without revealing too much, but it's pretty obvious that we, my dad was, he wasn't scared to smack us every now and again if we did the mm -hmm. wrong thing. We've got to, when I, yeah. look, I'm not condoning that, saying it's yes, yes or no to current society, but back then it was considered quite normal yeah. and in our family it was. Yeah. You know, I have nothing against that either. I actually respect my dad for what he did. He mm -hmm. never went too far. If he thought we were wrong, he punished us the way we should have, that issue he thought was right, and it went from there. The little relationship with dad was great. He loved sport, loved cricket, especially. Also liked his hockey. 
and he wanted us to play sport, wanted us to grow up having as much as we could. So my dad came from a family also that basically he had to earn a lot of money for his family or yep. he had to be there. He was the main breadwinner after I think he turned 14 or 15 in India. Yep. So that's how poor they actually were. I don't, look, my dad loved his father, but I think the rest of us have a bit of a strained relationship because of the fact that my, like I know how hard my dad has to work from that day. And the fact that he's always worked effectively from what he remembers, he's always been working. So I see all that and I see a very hardworking man who did what he had to do to get what he had to, to get what he had to get. He basically wanted the best books he wanted to make sure. For example, an example I can give is uh, when I was at I what school it was, I was in primary school at this point, they had like a secondhand school uniform day where they sold yep. secondhand school uniform. I had five bucks. I went and bought a shirt that was secondhand. And this isn't a slight to anyone who actually buys secondhand clothing, by the way. But when I got home, I showed it to my dad. And my dad turned around and said, mate, you're, you're not wearing this. There is no way in the world you're going to wear a secondhand shirt. Yep. And it wasn't because he was against the whole concept that he had to wear cheap clothing, the same clothing over and over again, or secondhand clothing. So in his mind, he did not want his son hmm. to have to go through the same. So it's interesting. Stuff like that he made sure never happened with us. The mistake, the things that he had to go through, he didn't want to repeat with us. Yeah, so I mean, things it's, like this. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain to a 14-year-old today that, you know, you might be responsible for essentially providing for your family and the you know the work you do the money you earn that's looking after the family and there's no there's no safety net there's no you know center link there's no nothing it's on you now son and off you go and that's that's a it's a huge burden to bear and would undoubtedly kind of form your your worldview based upon that and that's completely the way it would be and you know we look back at our generation went before and we should be more, a lot more thankful, I think, because it's uh, we've got no idea, no idea at all what they went through. Completely. And you're spot on, right? At that point, when you're 14 and you're forced into that position, you don't have a choice. You just have to do it. It's simple. That's life for you. Whereas now we have kids that they want it much easier. They just want, I guess, they want items handed to them. They're much more materialistic mm -hmm. than our would have been or our grandparents would have been. And I understand life's moving on, society's mm -hmm. changing from what it was. We have to, and I have to adapt to that, and we have to we have to be at least open to it. But I do think with that comes some of the negatives as we're going to speak about later. Yeah. And these are the changes. But not every change is good, and we need to understand that as no. a society. There's a reason why we sometimes turn tradition, to tradition and go, okay, that was a good thing, not a bad thing. And this, was, this wasn't good. Like I'm not saying, for example, Kids should have to work that young. I mean, if they don't have to, they don't have to. Kids should be kids. Yep. But then we have over-sexualization of children too. That's freaking ridiculous. I hate that. Mm -hmm. passion. Yep. Yet it's common in society today. So on one hand, we're saying, hide this from the kids. Kids shouldn't have to work, shouldn't have to do that. But on the other hand, we're saying, well, look at these videos that you see on TV yep. right now and these music clips, and that's completely normal. Yep. How is that? How does that make any sense? It doesn't to me. Like I think, you know, there's a bigger question to be asked about, you know, whether school or education in general prepares uh, children to be adults, to move into the adult world. And I think a big part of that learning in the adult world is starting to work and starting to realise that, you know, things cost money. And like certainly all my kids have been working, you know, from the age of 14 
you know, as soon as they're allowed to. And it treats, it just teaches them a tremendously powerful lesson. That if you, and if you don't do that, and then you just keep on in school until, I don't know, you're 25, I just think you're, you're just so naive to the world. And, um, you know, education isn't just going to school. It's about the lessons you learn from your family, you know, from society and from culture and from your own hard work. And that forms the, you know, that forms the person you are, you know, as an adult. And uh, I have serious concerns about how we're kind of building and shaping our particularly men for the future. I completely agree with you. So there is when, a softening, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when you went to school, was there? Did you feel? Was there anywhere like a, almost like a cultural clash or pull between? Obviously, you're going to school, I guess, with people who are just you know in brackets just normal Australians. Then obviously at home. It's a more kind of maybe Indian culture. Was there a, did you feel like being pulled almost between two cultures as you were growing up? That's actually a great way to put it. And I haven't used that before, but generally what I would do is I try to ignore my Indian heritage to try and fit in at school, especially high school, primary school, probably not as much, but high school, definitely. It got to a point where probably seven, eight, I just thought, okay, look, it's just not, I am completely, completely pushed my culture to the side as much as I possibly could. And I just tried to, and I actually genuinely tried to assimilate. Everybody mm-hmm. knows assimilation effectively then means to just blend in with the culture as much as possible, blending with what I see and adopt that. So I would have looked, luckily I never forgot my language, never forgot how to speak it, which is good, especially looking back on it. But a lot of the other principles I did, I would have let go, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a part of it because it just didn't feel right. It was a bit different because we had the restaurant in the background, so I could never completely forget. However, no. as much as possible, I did. I overcompensated to try and get rid of it, try and pretend it didn't exist, and to try and fit in. And then I also wonder what that did longer term and how it changed me. Because look, I, I don't know now because a lot of those things have let go. Yeah. Potentially, there might have been more, but it could also be that I've come full circle as well and realised what I missed. And looking back on it now, I see the culture actually, it works together. I mean, what is Australian culture? To me now, Australian culture is a mix of everything. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that, that's a really good point because you have this, people say, oh, you know, people should assimilate into Australian culture. What, what exactly is Australian culture? I think, you know, we're, we are almost schizophrenic in that we've got many different kind of aspects to our culture and that's what makes it a good culture. And I don't think we should be looking to say, okay, well, it is these three things. You know, by definition, we are a country full of people who've come from somewhere else and we've all brought something to add to it. And like, as long as we all love where we live and we want the best for the country, whether you eat a cheese sausage or a curry or whatever, or a a Greek food, whatever, who cares? It's it's, it's great to have this mixture and um, we should celebrate it and stop being so worried and preoccupied about trying to create this Australian culture, which I just think, you know, no one has ever been able to explain to me what that actually is, what it looks like. It doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's about how you feel about your country and us all wanting to make it a better place to live. And if that's where you feel, then you're part of Australian culture as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and it's what people need to realise. Australia is my home country. Yes, I was born in India. Yes, I still have heritage, family there as well. But I'm not Indian. I don't consider myself Indian. And look, I'm not, I just other people have a different view. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, but I consider myself Australian. 
Yep. I, that's just the way it's been. And maybe, I don't know when I made that decision, if it's a decision at all, mm-hmm. but that's what I consider myself. And I look here and look at the issues of the country now because I'm upset about what my country is becoming mm-hmm. and what it has Yeah, That's my issue. I don't care what the questions are. I do care what's happening in other countries as yep. well. People shouldn't suffer. But yep. ultimately, one of the reasons I speak You've heard this, Dave, and I'm going to hear it a hundred times, and you'll hear it a hundred times. It could be worse. Fucking hell, it could be worse. But it could be better, too. Just because it could be worse doesn't mean we shouldn't try and make it better. Yeah, that, that, the, the whole it could be worse is the dumbest argument in the world. It makes no sense. Because you can use it in every situation possible, you know. You know, I've been stabbed, or I could have been shot, could be worse. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the dumbest <laughs> thing ever. And, like, it the fact worse. that... The fact that it is worse in some parts of the world does not mean that we shouldn't be horrified about what's happening to our own country. And, um, yeah, that does my head in, that argument. And I, I agree. I've been here for 18 years. So I, I, live, I lived in England a lot longer. I turned 53 the other day, so I was 35 when we came to Australia. I consider myself an Australian. And I did from the literally the day we arrived. I'll be honest, it's been quite conflicting the last kind of couple of years about that because I have felt... A little bit divorced from the identity that I previously felt as an Australian, um, but I really hope that uh, we're on the I don't know on the uh, upside now of this whole farce, and we can actually reclaim our national identity again. And I really hope that we can come together again because that our country has never been more separated than it has been in the last couple of years. And I think there's a lot of rebuilding to be done, uh, and I really hope that can be done. But I don't know. It's uh, it's. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs at the moment, and um, we have got to all reclaim being Australian, wherever you came from. And Australia, what does Australia stand for? Well, for me, it's always been about a fair go, you know, and looking after your mate and that kind of thing. And that's what really appealed to me in the first place. And we have lost that to a certain degree. And all of us, wherever we started from in this world, we're here now, and we've got to try and rebuild that sense of togetherness that regardless of you know, your medical decisions or whatever, we are all Australians and we all want the best for this country. And that's a good point. Regardless of your medical decisions, regardless of other decisions you may have made, it's it just people need to remember humans are still humans, right? And Aussies are still Aussies. Yep. Your next-door neighbour is still your next-door neighbour and just because they made a decision of, a, or you may call it a decision, of one description or another doesn't necessarily change or well, doesn't change them as a person. No. If they treated you badly before, then sure, they might be bad neighbors because they treated you badly before, not because they didn't blame decide to get shot that you think they should get. That doesn't yeah. change their personality. That doesn't change who they are yeah. as people. Yet in the current time or right now, people have decided that that has that, that makes yeah. a difference. And this is why I keep harping on about it. I have been for a while. Mandates and directions are an issue. However, but the crux of the problem for me is the culture change that we've undergone in Australia. Yeah, totally. And the fact that this is actually a cultural issue now, as opposed to a governmental issue. If the culture here didn't accept it, the government would have fallen to this. Yes. The culture accepted it, the government kept enforcing it and got tighter. Yep. And this is what we could learn from, I guess you could say, our, our folk or our ancestors over in England. Because they didn't let it slide as easy. In America, you're even seeing issues. Don't get me wrong. It's not completely gone. There are industries where they're still fighting and our professions where they're still fighting. But the UK is a great example. But I guess yep. the UK have history of 
class war and some other struggles that Australia hasn't had to undergo. So without that, we don't have that background and that fightingness yet. But this should teach us a yeah. lesson for the future. I think um, in England, the England situation is very interesting, and I uh, I think it's, it's a lot to do with you know, um, to be the Second World War and it, the whole Brexit thing as well. There was a movement in England feeling like they didn't want to be controlled by Europe, and I think that a lot of that goes back to obviously the Second World War. And I think when you've been through as a country something like that, there is something in your um, makeup that means that you're not going to be quite. You don't you don't like to be told what to do and made to comply by people outside of. You know your nation and uh, you know the english government caved to the english public at the end because they said now nah, up yours we're not doing it and it was a great example it felt the whole thing fell apart literally in two weeks because people said nah enough of this already and uh i completely and totally moved on and i've got friends back in england that uh, their lives are completely and totally normal regardless of whether they've had the the jab or not and they're just getting on with life and uh it's amazing to look at where we are compared to that and I think it's to do with we are an isolated country in the literally middle of nowhere, and we just and we're just disconnected with what a lot of the hardship that exists in the world. So we just do what we're told. So the, it's quite funny that this kind of traditional idea of Australians is this kind of um, tough, um, really kind of like sort of the earth blue collar, you know, up yours kind of independent people, and that is dead. There's no doubt at all. It doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there may be some of us left or whatever, but most people are just very happy to do what they're told uh, and we've not questioned it in any way, shape or form. And that should worry us all because, you know, you may well agree with vaccination. Good on you. I, I think it's fantastic. If you want to get vaccinated, knock yourself out. But next time it could be something else that you don't agree with. But what are you going to do then? Just go along with that because, hey, I went along with the thing I did agree with and I don't care about anybody else's rights. So therefore I'll, yeah, I'll just keep going along with it. And, and we've created a present for ourselves and we have to turn around and say, no, um, we're better than that. And at the moment we're still not doing that. There are lessons that need to be learned from this period of Australia's history and this period in world history. And I think certain people are going to learn it, certain people are going to ignore it and forget it. And that's what upsets me is the majority of people do forget it or put it aside. In the next few years, I think we're going to see the side effects and the collateral damage of what has occurred in these couple of years. And as you've said, really, that, that's going to, we're going to see a lot about that. We're going to see a lot about that, a lot about what we're willing to give up. And people need to understand when you give something like this, like your liberty, freedom isn't there to give up. But if you do, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. They know what they can get away with now. And they know uh -huh. how they can get away with it. And that is a problem. And I'm, look, I, when I say they, I'm talking about governmental authorities. People have other hypotheses and theories about who's in power. I'm not even going into that. I'm simply saying, for the time being, the government was able to lock you in your homes until you could only go to the shops and you could only leave if you had one of four or five reasons. Yeah. Yeah. That is massive. And mm. we, unfortunately, as a whole, accepted it and let it be. That is problematic and that is going to cause issues in the future. Checks and balances in this country was complete, were completely eroded by these mandates and directions. And mm -hmm. really, you only had a couple of ministers in here to sign off on a document that said this had to happen and the whole country ran by it. It's unprecedented. That is mm -hmm. completely wrong. 
when you look at the Roman Empire, that is where this kind of stuff happened when they were called dictatorial dictatorship. Yep. And that's where effectively dictators come from. When a small group, a couple of people, or one person took power and basically decided what was going to happen in yep. times of war, there generally, yep. not in times of health issues or health crises. And they had to do in the Roman Empire. In war, you, this, I guess World War II would have been the last real time anything like this happened. But even, yep. I'm not a historian, so I haven't gone into it enough. But did we have the same type of draconian measures back then? I don't think we did. I don't think even no. during the war we did. And people, there were people who know this better could either correct me or tell me how it was. But I'm, from my understanding of World War II and one, we didn't. Yes, obviously things were hard to come by, which is very different. But you weren't locked like that. You, a lot of the time you were in your house because if there was a plane going involved, like if, I mean, not Australia necessarily, but if you were in Europe, for example, and Nazi Germans were flying overboard and they saw lights and they made this like a bomb in certain places, very different. That was a choice you then made to yeah. save yourself or as a community. Whereas here we've been told, no, you stay home because it's better for everyone. You can only leave under these conditions. Otherwise, keep yourself locked at home. I remember going to work because I still, being a solicitor, I still went to court, especially in New South Wales, and physically. The roads were completely bare, roads that I would see mm -hmm. absolutely chock-a-block. You'd go to court, there were a few people there. And it was just, it was such a, it, it felt like a facade like a movie it was just crazy yep yep and i can't forget this a lot of people can i can't forget this because i no. know the amount of damage that's done to people's lives and like i keep saying culture the australian culture so yep. look it's i hope as a country as citizens of australia we learn a lesson from this and we don't ever let this happen again but at this point i'm not very optimistic because what i'm seeing is people actually accepting however I've also seen the opposite of our countrymen and women who are now very much sick of what's happened, regardless of how many shots they've had, boosters they've had, and wanting to move on. So that is good to see. Mm -hmm. But still, we need to make sure these lessons are not forgotten. Yeah, look, I mean, people get bent out of shape when you start comparing what happened to like Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but all the time you've got people asking for your papers to allow free movement we should have alarm bells going off our head because that's that's not normal in a democracy that's not how we do stuff now i know there are always situations where you have to produce id blah blah blah, blah. again it's a straw man argument and people use this argument oh yeah well you've got to show id to go in a, into a pub if it's got like a certain license it's not the same thing you know the police are not stopping you and seeing if you're more than 5k away from your house uh, and if that doesn't trouble you as an Australian, then you, you've you've really got to think on about it. Um, and th this is it's hard to kind of see how you kind of get back from that. We've still got when I, where we we've been Market River, uh, which is a very strong tourist area. It's been Easter, so it's been very busy down here. Uh, you know, and the restaurants and the cafes are full of people. Now, you know, I haven't been to a cafe or a restaurant since uh, they introduced the the whole vaccine passport thing you know i could go because i was bullied into doing it before i left my job but i won't i refuse to show anybody anything to do with my medical history in order to sit down and have a pint i can stick it and i unfortunately i just don't think there's enough people who are prepared to say oh, hang on i'm not doing this so that concerns me greatly but i think we have to 
rediscover our strength as a culture and hopefully we can do but you know we need leaders to pull us back together and i just don't see anybody to be honest here in our political kind of uh, landscape that has the either the will the charisma or just the the drive to do that we just have divisive politicians who really are you know you look at scomo and albanese they're just two halves of the same arsehole to be honest you left cheek and right cheek and it's just like you know i don't trust either of them as far as i could throw them to be honest yeah so I, that that concerns me because we do need strong leadership really good leadership in australia at the moment we don't have that and i don't see that changing no politics here is at the moment is a farce and nothing but a farce i completely agree with you there are very minor differences between the two very minor who's worse i don't even know look i know some people when they when i just commented on scott morrison and said well no albanese is worse but look i think they're one and the same i don't okay. trust either of them i don't want either of them my only solution and it's not a solution it's temporary is to vote minor parties and have force a coalition yeah force a coalition that then forces these people to have a chat before anything is passed or anything's brought in because the minor parties are going to be more transparent at the bare minimum whether you like their policies or not then labor and liberal if they if one of them take the majority of the power or all power that's my way of dealing with it for the time being overall yeah, we need a stronger third and fourth party or at least a stronger third party and we just don't have that at the moment maybe one day uap may become something maybe one day one nation will get stronger or one of the other parties will get stronger and i should add the greens are very much just like labor just a hardcore labor so they're yeah. all they're all on the same but that's been my only real temporary like short-term solution because it's the only way wholesale changes are not going to work and i understand that that's been my that's my philosophy i just don't see people completely voting these guys out and uap taking over but no. i can see people giving enough power to the uap getting the right candidates in the right one nation candidates in that what then happen is when a decision is made these guys have to speak to the uap and one nation and they can go well no we don't like this shit. no way or we want these changes which is still a better check and balance than what we have at the moment yeah because you really have labor and liberal they're doing the same thing they chat to each other but they were both agreeing nothing's transparent so that's the way i look at it is making small minor changes next election these other parties grow and the two major parties come down in power yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right about the minor parties. My only concern about the minor parties is that they tend to split the vote because there is a, you know, a proportion of people who will vote for the minor parties, but there's so many minor parties who are kind of in the same kind of area of like policy that there's a danger of it that they'll be split between it. But certainly, I think in terms of the Senate, we have a very good chance there of having a hung parliament with the power being you know, amongst the, the minor parties um in the, the house i don't know unfortunately i think um, scott morrison has done everything in his power to lose this election i mean I, I don't think you could find someone who's made more effort to appear to be a total clown and not control of anything over the last year honestly I, I, whoever's advising him should be taken outside and probably beaten because uh, his pr people must I don't know who they are but it's been, at times been like a satire it's like am i watching this at all is this, is this real or is this a satire yeah. um and albo really he literally, apart from his 
first press conference where he didn't know the answer to some basic questions. He can only lose this election by being completely hopeless or more hopeless than Scott Morrison. It's like a race to the bottom. And, um, yeah, it gives me great concern for the future. Anyway, so if we can kind of go step back in time a little bit. So going yeah. into sort of like, like your school time and um, particularly in like secondary school, which is such an important time for a boy, you know, did you find that there were, yeah, other than your dad, obviously, who was a massive part of like, an influence on your life as a man, were there teachers or other people basically that you found, uh, you know, you, you looked up to or you took direction from? I, I'll give people a sneaking insight into my life, which will probably then explain why there's a particular teacher who I looked up to. And this guy I still have respect for to today. I had my daughter quite early on in life. I was 16, so I was still in high school when yep. she was born. Literally speaking, I was 16. So I think I turned several. She was born in December, so I turned 17 just after she was born. Around that time, I was supported quite a bit by one of my year advisor at the time who was a i think a great guy i i undervalued him completely but the amount of support he did give me like even in because i moved out of the house for a little my parents house for a bit eventually moved back in but just the support he gave me there was magnificent i don't know if i should name him here but he was a he'll know who he is because he was my year advisor from mm -hmm. seven to twelve and people at school will know who i'm talking about too but he was a great guy probably one of the best guys I've met, especially in that that role. So Camden has a very strong agricultural background. So the school mm -hmm. actually has an agricultural department and he was part of that. He was the head of the agricultural department. So I guess he already had features about him and values and traits that were quite significantly, as we would call manly or masculine. But he, a lot of things, and I can't remember direct quotes and stuff that he said now, but just a lot of things he said and how he how he would phrase things and how he would teach his methods and everything, just they were brilliant. And what I found of him was not just support, but I learned a lot of him. And I think masculinity-wise, I learned quite a bit of him. But he was a very, was a, I think he was a humble guy. He was quite an mm -hmm. intelligent person, but also had a great sense of humour. And that's why I connected with him. And the interesting part to that is I did not even realise how much I connected with him until after I finished school, I think, yeah. because he was no longer there. It was one of those things that, oh, crap, I got a lot from this guy. I've actually learned quite a bit, and it was a realisation after the fact, if that makes sense. I think that's often the way. You don't realise until later on what, what the impact people have on your life. I'm the same. Yes, yeah, so he was, and he was definitely that. And I can clearly say that they're two of the biggest role models and best role models I've had and don't get me wrong, like I faced, so also having my daughter early on probably, it's probably shaped me, but not probably, I think it's definitely shaped me the most and gotten me to where I am. Yep. Having, having that responsibility has changed me a lot in the last, I guess, since she was born. So that was a big thing because what I realised is if I was on my own, I make decisions for myself. Like, I mean, the family's impacted, but I felt there was more, I could be a bit more selfish. But when that's no longer the case, I just can't do that anymore. And I think I learned a lot from that process and that's gotten me to where I am. But one of the biggest, I guess, factors people ask why I don't drink, it's not solely her, but what I will say is when you have a child that young, you don't really have time for drinking or partying at that point. <laughs> you kind of got to do what you got to do. You change nappies at 17, 18, and you just get yep. it done. Yep. 
And as much as my parents supported me through that process, it was, uh, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So uh, like, a lot of my yeah. decisions have to stem from that. For sure. I mean, that would be, you know, you look at moments of your life that, you know, have a massive impact. There is no bigger impact than having children. And particularly at that age, that would be like a, a, a bomb going off in your life, really. Because, um, you know, I, I had children um, young, but in a different way. So, you know, I was 22 when I met my wife uh, and she had two children already. So I had like an instant sort of family overnight and at the time i was a bit of a piece of shit to be honest with you in terms of i was just uh, just drinking and just carrying on and like um i look about that now as that's a single most important moment of my life because it forced me to grow up very quickly and there's a there's a fantastic one of my favorite quotes from from jordan peterson which i'm now going to butcher it, it talks about basically what you need to do is find the biggest load there is and pick it up and that essentially is the secret to, you know, a fulfilled in life is that you, it's not to, to have no responsibility. It's to have responsibility. And you find that load and you carry it. And that's the secret to happiness. And that's my lived experience, to be honest, in that, you know, if I hadn't met my wife and we hadn't got together, I don't know where I'd end up, quite frankly, because it, it made me who I am today. And uh, I'll always be grateful for that. But if you'd asked me a year before that happened, if I thought that was a good idea in my life, I would have laughed in your face and had another drink, to be honest, yeah. So, you know, these things that happen to us, like having a child at that age, we may have never, never planned it. Not sound like a great idea, but in hindsight, it just makes us who we are. And I'm just so grateful for those moments. That's a very good way to put it. That's exactly right. It just, it changes you. It forces you to change even without you realizing. Totally. I can tell you now. Forget the fact that it was unplanned, obviously, you know, planned brings it 16, but putting that aside, when the baby's born or when my daughter was born, you just, you have to feel it, you change it, happies. when she cries, you pick her up, you, you deal with, you do what you need to do. You don't yeah. think twice about it, it no. just happens. So that could be a positive of being that young too, I guess, because uh, there was no time to think, you just made it happen and you went with it. So then automatically these other changes, as you said, kind of fall into place because then it starts setting you up. And what it has done, and I, my dad also had a conversation, one of the best conversations he's ever had, where he imparted how important this responsibility is. And basically, regardless of age, it doesn't matter how this has happened. I mean, obviously it wasn't exactly on cloud nine, well, my actions, put it that way, but when he did see it and when he rationalized it and come down from it, he said, well, in the end, you now have this responsibility. It's now on you because it's make or break. You either do well with it or you don't. And for me, I had a lot of respect for what he said and I valued what he said. It's true. Because if I now don't perform or do well as a person, it's not just going to hurt me and the family. It's going to hurt my daughter specifically. And yeah. she's only there because of me. So really, that's yeah. not fair on her at all. So it became a really good, like it also, it's like a good check and balance, so to speak, like a mm -hmm. genuine check and balance. Because if I ever thought something stupid, you're like, no, 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 this is where you're at. This is what you need to do. But however, I will say for other people, it did help that my family did end up supporting me. Yeah. And I'm skipping a bit here because they did, it wasn't exactly a, a brilliant experience from the get-go. They took a long time, especially in an ethnic household. I can so imagine. I can tell you. The average Aussie wouldn't think that's normal, let alone no. parents who are traditional and Indian or at that point from Indian heritage. 
they didn't like it. No. My uh, mum, when I told her for some ball to rise out, my dad just didn't speak to me for a while. And I can completely see why now, because looking now, my daughter is the same age that I am. Just frozen up there. Yeah. Oh, so so I was saying, looking back at it now, I can see why they thought, why they would have been upset, yeah. and why it would have been so hard. The level of maturity definitely wasn't there. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, I, I didn't even realize, but bang, it hit you, you make it work, you change. And my parents definitely came on board and started supporting me after that. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I am either, which is why I value that a lot. As from both sides, mum and dad. And I have to say, in this case, they both did quite a lot. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't, my dad did just as much as my mum did. Obviously, I think my mum did better when it came to assisting. Yeah. And there were things my dad did better when it came to assisting. They both played their part. But the emotional support was was there. Uh, I didn't, and again, going back to what we were talking about before, I don't think I valued it as much back then because it was just mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. Now, now I can see what they did and what they yeah. did do for me and how hard they had to. As we, were, we had family friends that didn't really forget respect that they looked down on Yeah. They looked down on everything that had happened, and I was uh, my family wasn't. I wouldn't say outcast, but there were some things that were said for a few yeah. years about it. It's very interesting, you know, turning back now and also knowing how those same people can't say the same thing anymore because they now see they've seen achievements and everything's forgotten. Exactly. And they yeah. and they pat you on the back and they need your assistance now when there's any legal help that's needed. Who they're going to call? It's funny how that happens, but that took. A good seven, eight years of my parents struggling against it yeah. before it was like, before it turned, then they realized, shit, this guy's actually gotten somewhere. And yeah. I look back and go, if, if I didn't have my daughter at that age, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would have been a solicitor. I don't think I would have gotten to where I am. And look, I could be wrong on that, but I just think the way she grounded her, the way that grounded her, what it was called, yeah. was, uh, it's neck is priceless. Yeah. school. Teacher, like we had sports with her, would go to school and volunteer for a bit. The time I could spend with her, I couldn't do now as a 30 odd year old parent to another child. Put it that way. Yeah, I mean, that's what kids are supposed to do. You know, for a man, that's what they're supposed to do. And it, it makes me very sad that so many men don't stand up to their responsibilities. And, you know, I've spoken about a lot about, you know, the importance of fatherhood at the moment has never been more important and um you know it's but it's supposed to make you the best version of yourself as a man and unfortunately if you run away from it you never get the opportunity to benefit from it and yes it's a lot of hard work it's not easy at all but the you know the benefits far outweigh you know the cost and like you know hats off to you for for, for dealing with that at that age because i think i'd have found that super difficult i just wasn't mature enough to deal with anything like that at 16 years old i was a clown to be honest so that's uh well, i you got it change i don't know how many 16 year olds i look i get to one difference is because i did well actually no i can't say this because you might have done the same thing but working in the restaurant stuff i had a bit of a background in that but otherwise there's no background in childcare. There's no, no background in realizing that shit, you got to wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. Make sure you spend, you got to, no. you got to stop it crying. That wasn't me. I it had no there. idea. Yeah. How are you at 16 then? 
No, so basically, I, I got together with my wife when I was 22, and like um, she'd had two children from a previous relationship, so they were 18 months old and three years old. So I kind of overnight had a couple of kids, and um, you know, I, I, it was just. Uh, I look back now, and I really have no idea how I cope with it, to be honest, you, because I was a bit of a, a mess in many respects. But uh, it, I needed to have responsibility in my life. I needed to be responsible for someone else other than myself. Um, and that just kind of allowed me to develop as a, as a, I guess, as, as, as a man, because I was just very immature for that age prior to that. And it was like a massive, massive, like, uh, you know, literally 180 degree overnight, but it, I don't regret it for a second. It was a, the, by far the best thing I've ever done in my life. And, um, it's been amazing 30 years to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm so proud of all my kids and, if I'd have missed that out, yeah, it'd be very easy to walk away from that. I'll go, hang on a minute. Why, why would I want to get into a relationship with somebody who's got children and um, lose all my kind of financial and every freedom? But it was just the right time for me. And um, it, it, yeah, I, I just, I'm so grateful that that happened because, uh, I, like I say, I have no idea what would have happened without that. And, uh, you know, I sit here now, a very grateful person for that just wonderful opportunity. And it's, it's been an absolute blessing. And uh, I give thanks for that every single day. And as a, as a man, if you have children, whether they are your birth children or, or not, the opportunity to influence and m help to mold another human being is the most precious gift you'll ever get. And has a huge amount of responsibility with that gift as well. And the fact that we as a as a as a culture and particularly in the west have of starting to denigrate the role of the father um does us no good whatsoever i'm not saying that women can't do a fantastic job as, as single mothers they do the very best they can and i'm not saying that relationships just stay together when they're abusive and, and things like that but we throw away relationships far too easily and we tell ourselves that the kids won't be affected and that is just bullshit. We're just telling ourselves that to make us feel better. It, it will affect the kids. I've seen it firsthand. I've dealt with it as a police officer for 13 years. It absolutely affects those children, you know, for their entire life. You know, I've, long story short, when I worked as a human source handler, you know, you deal with people who are criminals who are trying to win favor in the courts by providing information. And they talk to you about their history and then they, you become their friend very quickly. And when you listen to their stories, you know, I can't think of a single one who had a nice upbringing, with a nice family. You know, they're all—it's all an absolute just car crash. And what's not on the scene in most cases is the dad. Dad's gone. You know, he's a crackhead or whatever. You know, but they haven't taken responsibility for that child. And that child, thirty years later, is now a crash. And it's—you can trace it all back, back to that moment. I just wish men could kind of hear that. And really realize if you're going to have a child, it is your responsibility for their entire life. And you owe them. You, you've got that. You've created that child. You owe them the best life you can give them. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but you owe them the, your best effort. If you don't do that, we can't be friends. I'm sorry, because that, that's, that is how I judge somebody ultimately. If you're having children and you're not taking responsibility, you know, you're not my kind of guy, to be honest. And um, I wish, as a society, we we frowned upon that more, rather than oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah, he's tried and given up. 
you know, we all, we all know somebody like that who's got kids, who doesn't play child support and like, oh, he's a bit of a larrikin, blah, blah, blah. No, he's not. He's a piece of shit. He doesn't look after his kids. Let's be honest about this and then stop creating that person as a role model for others. It's not. Look, I think we should touch on what we've spoken about this in, I guess, other times as well. It's the underlying issue that people are missing, right? The underlying yep. issue that causes or is causing in society, for example, as you just mentioned, crime. Crime, when you speak to some of those people, and I can say, just like you have with some of the clients, in fact, a lot of clients I have, there's either a mental illness or some kind of abusive or an issue in the past at the bare yep. minimum, and usually a number of issues. And some of that is daddy issues or parental issues or no guidance. They haven't had guidance. They haven't had a good upbringing, which leads them to where they are today because that is their formative years and that's what yep. their foundations are. That's what they grow up with as normal. Uh, I look at the best example I can give is you're growing up drinking milk and all of a sudden someone tells you it's, completely bad for you it's going to kill you it's wrong you're going to you're going to be thinking a few times about you may not even be able to make that change yeah because of the fact you've grown up with it when someone has grown up without boundaries when someone's grown up without guidance how do we now enforce the rules so to speak the unwritten or written rules of society yeah. and tell them you are now living within these and morally speaking this is wrong when they've never been told that as a younger person, whether it's male or female, it doesn't make sense. And people need to understand morals, values are instilled at an earlier age. And it's very difficult to change someone once they hit a certain age. Yep, totally. The problem is then it becomes that vicious cycle of once they're in, how do you get them out? It's mm -hmm. near impossible. Very few people can actually fix themselves at that point. Some, I guess part of it may be how bad their past has been and how bad their history has been and how difficult but there are obviously other factors as well this is generalizing but once you get caught in that cycle it's very difficult to pull someone out very difficult yeah like i mean i know it's uh, an unpopular viewpoint to have these days but i think we should be okay as a society saying that the ideal situation for a child's upbringing is to have two parents i don't care you know what sex or whatever you know or that's fine you know that's that children need two parents and ideally the parents need to play a role of mother and father regardless of whether they're the same sex couple or whatever the children need those two different influences you know neither one is more valuable than the other but you take either one out of that equation i think the child is less than the whole if you like they've, they've missed out on that huge um influence and love and nurture from a parent and it's irreplaceable i don't think you know there's no way you can there isn't a magic thing you can do that makes up for that i've never seen it you know and i, 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 I if you think about crime and who commits crime you know it's probably you know let's say it's five percent of the population are, are the ones who are, who are committing 80 percent of probably just basic crime and that's certainly the way it's my experience. And when you speak to those people, you just see it time and time again that they come from chaos uh, and they're carrying around the trauma of their childhood into their adult lives and then just kind of making their society pay for that. And you go, okay, well, that's still their fault. They're making choices. Yeah, they're making choices. But it's very easy when you come from a, a good upbringing, a stable upbringing with two parents who've done the right thing by you, uh, you know, 
to to look at other people and go, oh, you know, they're just going to do the right thing. And I don't understand why people behave like that. If you speak to them, actually speak to them, not just judge them, um, you'll find that, you know, A, they're not very different at all from you. They've just had a very different life path. And the reason their life path has been different is because people in their life who are supposed to take responsibility and supposed to show them away just haven't done that. And now we've got this broken adult that has got, you know, drink, drugs, whatever problem insert there, uh, and he's just broken and he's broken in society and will never become a functioning member of society until we do something to fix that and just chuck him in jail. There's not fixing it. It's just, uh, it's just the problem just goes away for a little bit then comes back out of jail probably with more knowledge of crime than, than even in jail in the first place. On that note, I actually think that I'm going to add to that. It gets worse. Most situations, once they go to jail, they get worse, especially if they're into petty crime. I can tell you, what if they've committed several driving offences as compared to violent offences? They then go to jail, they learn off other people. They're not treated very well. They've had their liberty taken away. They come back angry, upset. Yep. There are programs in jail that people think these work for everyone. They don't. Nope. They're effectively one-size-fits-all programs, and these programs aren't made for everyone. This is why incarceration is and should be a last resort, but unfortunately yep. it isn't always. It does depend on the presiding judicial officer. But if people think that jail is a fix-all, it definitely, definitely no. isn't. And if you people think that there's no drugs in jail, I can tell you there's jail where there's, there's jails, not all jails, but a lot of jails. It's easier to get drugs for my clients and ex-clients in there than it was outside. 100%. It's freaking ridiculous. Like, I can tell you that from experience. Yep. 100% agree. That's my experience of it as well. And, um, you know, we have a, in Western Australia, we have a, a youth crime um, massive problem, particularly up in the far northwest of the state, up in the Pilbara and the Kimberley. There is a massive, massive issue with youth crime, which is primarily being committed by young Indigenous youth. And some of these kids are under 10 years old and that, I, mean, I had a mate who worked up there recently. They're getting car, police cars rammed on a regular basis, chases every night. It is absolute and total chaos. And how do we fix this? Well, it isn't just to lock people up. I understand how the public is frustrated because, you know, in, in some of these towns, you literally can't leave your car with a dollar coin in the, in the, in the, in the, in the centre console because they'll smash your window for it every night. It's yeah. totally frustrating for them because the public just want to be protected, which is fair enough. But we've got these eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who've got FASD, which is the fetal alcohol syndrome, um, who are broken before they ever were born. And we've somehow got to try and do something with these poor kids. And uh, there's no empathy for them. It's just, oh, you know, little bastards doing crime. Yeah, they are. But, you know, their life sucks. It absolutely sucks. And when they get sent to Banksy Hill Detention Centre, eventually, it's like a holiday camp for them. They get three meals a day, a comfortable bed, you know, and a PS5 to play with because their home life sucks balls. No one gives a shit about them and they're surrounded by abuse, alcoholism, drugs every day. So going to prison is actually a, a pleasant escape from that. So we've got a massive problem which we cannot arrest or prison people out of. So I don't, that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, it's just, uh, it all starts from, you know, who had that child you know where were the family where were the parents how do we make this better because if you could have you have the parents there 
everything else becomes a little bit easier to deal with. When the child is born, no one gives a shit in the first place. It's born of a, of a, of a mother who is an alcoholic, who drunk all through pregnancy, who's ruined the child already. There's no father on the scene, and the child is just par from relatives to, to try, trying to their best. And by the time they're six years old, you know, they're committing offences on a daily basis. Uh, it's, it's a horror story, which nobody in Australia wants to talk about. Um, but I don't know how you fix it, but certainly at the moment it's just getting worse and worse and worse. I'd imagine it's probably the same on that side of the country, is it? Exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Like, juvie, most people are going to juvie don't come out better people. They definitely don't come out better people. Look, there are some that probably do get shit scared and then come and go, what the hell's happening? But a lot of these people already have decent... So one that goes to jail has a bad background or bad past they might have just had a bad moment or bad little little i guess block in their life so for example if they have a family who genuinely does care or anything like that when they come out they may actually come out of shit i am scared i don't want that again but a lot of these guys are going they're not like that they don't like the fact that they can't run the streets but they're not going in there getting better they're going in there learning lifting weights, getting more pissed at society for locking him in there in the first place, come out more aggressive little bastards, and they hammer on. So, I think, look, I think it's the same, Dave. I think it's the same whether it's Indigenous, First Nations people, or uh, white, or Lebanese, or Indians, or, you know, whoever's locked up. When you're locked up as a kid, mentally speaking, I think the issue's the same. And, unfortunately, there are people who, like, and I don't know how to say it in a politically correct way, but some people probably shouldn't have had children, unfortunately, and those people have, it's very hard for them to raise children. I'm not saying it's a fault of their own. It could be the no. circumstances or whatever. Because, again, it's, just, it's, generation, it's generational trauma. You've got basically people who were children of trauma now having their own children of trauma, and the cycle just continues. And I don't really know how you fix that, if I'm honest. I think it's a, a massive, massive piece of work that I don't see anybody in politics having any interest in actually trying to fix because it's firmly in the two hard basket and they're terrified of what it looks like when you start talking about it so it's just not spoken about simple as that it's just just that we just pretend it's not a problem and because a lot of and certainly in western australia a lot of this crime is happening in towns which are quite remote from perth so people don't even know it happens until they go on holiday to Broome and find out the high car has been stolen inside the first three hours. That really kind of happened. That's when it's real to them. Other than that, they just read it on the news and go, oh, yeah, that's terrible, isn't it? Never mind. Move on. What's on TV? And, um, you know, no one's interested in actually pressurising the government to fix it either. And the government just governments just fix what they feel like that they, there is pressure to fix. Simple as that. If they think they're, they're, the people who have the voting party care about something guess what they care about it too if they don't think that uh, the voting public care about youth crime in you know in the rural situations then not a problem really we'll, we'll talk about building a stadium or something because people care about that and and that's where we're at with wa it's very sad look governments are all about band-aids they're not about because the underlying issue can take eight years, yeah. 10 years, 12 years, maybe, oh, to 100%. rectify, whereas a Band-Aid, you can see right now, oh, that Band-Aid's there. So great, it's fixed. We can, we've got to now look great for the public and not actually achieve anything. 
And this is my problem with political correctness. It's just a bloody band-aid overall. That's all that is. We need to stop applying band-aids and look at fixing the underlying root cause or root issue. And some of these changes shouldn't be as slow, but it's just unfortunate that we act in a way or that uh, and this isn't just Australia, though, I, I can't say that, but a lot of countries where a lot of changes predicated around, it, it just, it's slow. It is so slow, and it's because there is no care for the underlying issue, or it's just completely ignored unless it has to be. Yep. Whereas yep. at the end, it is just easy. Yeah. Well, look, I think we can definitely do an entire show about youth crime and like, the, the situation of that, because it's, it's just something that I'm so passionate about, and I know you are too. Um, and... I guess the whole point really is just to try. What I'd love to try and do is start just a, a, a discussion about this because that's the first stage is to actually have Australia aware of these problems and start to actually care about it and talk about it. And we're just so distracted by bullshit and like um, just things that aren't important. But that's that's what's happening in our country right now. We've got kids that uh, don't go, don't put their head down at night in beds where they feel safe where the abuse is literally all around them and then they're going out committing you know i'm talking about seven eight year old kids who may have committed 150 offenses by that age but because they're under 10 they're not criminally responsible um so there isn't even a way of punishing them if you thought that was a good idea but you know it's something we have to discuss as a nation and it's like our dirty little secret we don't want to talk about because it's um you know, it distracts from the kind of uh, the other bullshit that's happening in the world. Anyway, fly on a tangent. So going back to obviously having your your daughter. So did you did you continue education then, or how did, how did you work all that around there? Uh, Utah wasn't my best year. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I can I imagine, <laughs> but it wasn't my best year. But I did go to uni straight away. Look, I did well enough to go to uni. But how do I say this? I, even though I wasn't able to study as much as I should have, I was able to do okay enough or well enough to get through. So at that point, I retained information well enough. I mm -hmm. said it wasn't my best year. I definitely didn't do, I didn't get high 90s or any of that, but I did well enough that I got through. So, and a lot of that was just because I had my dad going, mate, she got it. And tertiary education wasn't a choice in my family. It was, no. you have to do it. Yep. I don't care what you do after, oh, but you need to get that degree first. And yep. I'm sitting here saying, I'm glad that was the way it was, because at that point, I didn't want to go to university. I yep. it would have felt easier not to. Yep. And my dad made sure that wasn't a choice. So I did. I ended up going to uni. I, got a, I had a business degree first. I didn't actually want to be a solicitor or a lawyer. I think me when I actually said that on Instagram, for example, like, oh, but genuinely law had nothing to do with my aspirations whatsoever. I just want to be in some kind of international international business that involved export yep. and import. And I don't know why that was the case, but that was just what I had in my head. What I realized pretty quickly that a business degree was too general and I needed to have further qualifications. That is why I picked law. And again, it was a secondary choice. I looked at doing my honours first, which I'm not a research person, so it wasn't the right thing for me. And doing a further a master's didn't feel right at the time. So I thought, you know what? Law seems to be a great little second degree. It will look cool alongside business and it won't be so general. Mm -hmm. In that period, I did a mind law. 
plus because of my experience with family law with my yep. daughter it's that helped me or pushed me towards family law mm-hmm. not that that became my main area of practice after but that's where my head was at and that's how i got into law and that's why well that's basically the main reason i kind of fell into it it was a mm. it wasn't, wasn't it, it wasn't a choice i did choose to go into it or not but I chose to do that off my own bat and I started enjoying it. I realized law actually has something in it for me. And it wasn't because of jurisprudence. And just so people know, jurisprudence is reading how the law came about. I couldn't yeah. give a shit about that. It's not my area of interest. No. My area of interest is the application, how it works, how you can actually, for example, with contract law, how a contract works now, what is valid, what is invalid, with criminal law, it's how a charge can be proven, the elements. So, for example, mm-hmm. David's going to charge someone, he'd see if he charged them with assault, basically, there are a certain number of elements that need to be proven. Yep. An assault doesn't need to be physical, technically, but there are certain elements such as uh, immediate fear and an action that need to be taken out. And then I would look yep. at the other side and go, well, if those elements aren't proven, then we don't actually have a proven offence that we can be by the court. Yep. That's the kind of stuff that got me interested in it. Whereas family yeah. law, it was what I found a discrepancy because I definitely had issues. Sorry, going to give it. I definitely had issues that I felt were in the family law system at that time. But look, I haven't done as badly as other fathers have, luckily, because other fathers I've seen that have really been able to, and that's unfortunate as well. But look, I, I did that. When I started practicing it, I didn't want to. I basically decided family law was a thing. I ended up becoming more of a criminal lawyer and over time opened up a bit more. So a lot of what I did was just basically get a court day in day. I have effectively, I became a criminal law specialist for a bit, but what I found is those skills can be used anywhere. Being a, someone who's an advocate in the criminal law domain, I can go to the family court, I can go to fair work or the federal court and advocate because, yeah. advocate because I know you just, you grow these skills and it ends up becoming your main focus. You basically, one way to put it is you pay us for our services, but you also pay us to talk and knowing yeah. that's the right time. That's where it comes from. Some people like there's an adage and I guess I'm paraphrasing it slightly, but solicit, a solicitor has to revert to the law to win a case that's already lost effectively. It's knowing the magistrate, knowing the presiding judge, yeah. or knowing yeah. the judicial officials or the city. And this is why self-represented people often struggle. Not because they're idiots. It's not because they're idiots, but you don't no. necessarily know the system. And that holds you back. That pushes you away and you're treated very differently. This is why some self-represented people are excellent because they've researched the crap out yeah. of the system. They just know how it works or they've had previous experience. I can tell you, I have had clients who've been in the criminal law realm so many times that they know the system back to front. They will know exactly what to what submissions you want. You should make it bail. What they've done right, what they've done wrong. Yeah. What they're going to get on sentence, they already have that idea, and that's amazing yep. because they know that better than other lawyers because they've got that experience. So, yep. it, that's what you pay for. That's where the skill set is, and it's not about that piece of paper that came out of the degree. It means nothing. In my opinion, six months or maybe three months of my law degree actually is applicable to the modern time of what I actually do. Yeah. Okay. You could easily, Dave, I'm telling you, people have asked me this, could they do it? Like, if it wasn't for the system at play, you, or you could come and start working for us now and I could, you could be a 
brilliant solicitor because you have street smarts and you're able to vocalize your message and just have a strong enough vocabulary. It has nothing to do with book smarts. I don't believe there are certain no. areas of the law that do that you need to be a bit more eloquent. You probably need more research skills and whatnot. Yeah. Generally speaking, being a good solicitor in most rooms is experience and repetition has a lot to do with it, knowing the system. So, which is why I actually think the best lawyers are necessarily the ones who have, I guess, you when I've ever looked at hiring someone, is how one honest they are, but how dedicated they are to what they do. If they don't have an answer, Samir, I'll get back to you. I just want to have a look into this. I like yeah. that. Or yeah. if they if they don't understand something, Samir, can you explain this or I don't understand this? Yeah. I appreciate that because if you bullshit, you lie to me and pretend, and then you come across that's worse to me. I didn't know where to start. And I yeah. guess part of what I had, I didn't have when I first started because I was just basically given stuff and I could tell you I was having taught the first few times because I had to learn by fire, I just wasn't taught. But I don't want to do that to my peers and my team. So that's yeah. not what I do. You gotta know, you have to know when to reach out for support. You have to know when to yeah. ask for assistance and not be scared. And I genuinely believe that. But at the same time, if I've told you something five times and you keep forgetting it, that's a bit of a problem too. So let's not go too far. So have, so have you kind of now adopted almost like a mentor role yourself with your younger, the people that are working for you in your legal practice? Completely. And I think that's why I do what I do here as well. Yeah. I can do this because a few, well, uh, a few years ago, maybe a year and a bit ago, my role was completely, I would be doing all the legal work, everything, yeah. all the letters, all that. Now I have a team that can actually do stuff on their own, uh, obviously with supervision because there are a lot of them still juniors. But they're self, they they know what to do. They've got the process. They've learned a bit. So a lot of what I do is that mentorship side, mm. and a lot of what I do is try and put out information and try to relay that directly to people. And look, I enjoy what I do now. I still go to court, obviously, because that's I will never give that up. I don't want that. I mean, whilst I can, I don't want to give that up. Whilst I have the capacity to do so, but what I also know is you got to diversify and that's what I've done as well. And if I'm a better mentor now, and if I can increase, you know, if I can assist more people by mentoring a team of 10 or team of six, rather than me having to do it all, then that's what I need to do. And that's what it comes to because I can overlook six people, which allows us to assist more. If I'm doing it all on my own, I can't assist as yep. many people as well. And that, I guess that's just simple marketing principles as well, yep. as well as knowing how to deliver. But this is this is the power of mentorship, and it's it's a bit of a it's a skill we've lost, I think, um, just the way that society has developed. Um, there used to be a lot more mentorship that happened in work roles. You know, like the the idea of an apprenticeship, that kind of stuff, really is ultimately a, a mentorship in many respects, and we've lost that um, really essential skills to develop other people. And you can you can influence so many more people. You can't do it all yourself in the world, wherever you are. You're only one of you. If you can start to influence other people to do, you know, the right thing based upon, you know, trying to help and support them, it's incredibly powerful. And also for me, I always have always found it incredibly rewarding to kind of develop people and see how they kind of start to develop as individuals and develop their own strengths and weaknesses. And you know, it's yeah. You know, I've always that's 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 the most exciting part of ever, ever working with people is seeing how they kind of start at a maybe down here 
and they just where you work over a period of time, you can just see that not just their performance you know, from a business perspective increases, but they as a person just become a more rounded, better human being. And, and that's what we should all be trying to do ultimately is help people become better human beings and be more productive in society, whatever they do for a job. Just you know, being a good human is the most important thing. And um, yeah, I could talk about this all day for mentorship. Mentorship is everything to me. And like, uh, it's weird. I, I was thinking the other day, I've, I've always enjoyed being a mentor to people. Uh, I've done that just naturally for whatever job I've had. But I, you know, I've never really probably gone out and, and sought mentors. And I think that's a, that's a weakness on myself. So is it something that you, you know, do you actually seek mentors or in the legal world, have you got people that you look to as a mentor? Completely, completely. And I think that's actually a good point. First, I have to say the strength of the solicitor is his or her network. Yep. The best lawyers have a good network because I do not know it all. And I openly say that on my Instagram. Someone asked me a question. I don't have answers to everything. Yeah. I will never will. But I try to know where I can obtain those answers. And some of these are my friends, colleagues, barristers I know, students even. Some of these students are a bit, look, I'm not the best. I hate researching. I'm not great at it. I'd rather yep. there's students that are coming through, like our paralegals are better than I am, so I can ask them. Or I can call yep. one of my mates and go, mate, this is what's going on. What do you think? I have a bail application that's a bit tricky because as someone a serious plight risk, I'll call up one of my embarrassments and say, well, this is the issue. What do you think? What's your thoughts on this? No, and that's what I mean. You have to know when to ask a question or when to yeah. ask for help. If we all develop our specialties and our skill sets on strength, but one of our biggest weaknesses as people generally is when we're not willing to ask for help and we don't 100%. know when to speak our mentor or find our mentor yep. or go to our mentor. Yep. Yep. And no. This is, I don't know if shyness is the right word, but it is, you're holding yourself back by doing that. Because it if totally. you make that call, that person doesn't think you're an idiot. In fact, that person no. probably enjoy mentoring you. And 100%. Just, and if, they, if they do think you're an idiot, then, then they're, then they're a dickhead anyway. So who cares? Yeah, you know what they think? I mean, if that's the way they react, then they're not your mentor because they, that's not how your mentor should react. Completely. No, I think you're spot on, right? This is the thing, right? They also get something from it too. And when I mentor my team, I'm getting something from it as well because if they improve and they develop, like you mentioned, as some of the guys that you're working with, that makes me feel better too as a person. I'm sure probably the same thing for you because you're 100%. helping someone develop. You're helping the yeah. system overall. Yeah. If I have a team now of six strong solicitors, that's better for me. That's better for everyone else as well because we can now deliver a service yeah. and a better service to a lot more people. Yep. Totally. So completely. And I honestly think one of the – and this is – I don't know if it's the gender-based thing or what it is, but we should not be afraid to ask for help when we need it in yes. any area of our Look, sometimes it might take you some time to build up that courage, which is fair enough, but don't be afraid to do it. Take that step before it's too late because otherwise problems build and it get, it may, may get to a point that you actually, the assistance may not be enough. Anymore. You don't. Like, I think it's a, it's a particular male trait of not wanting to seek out help. And I thought about this recently because after doing the first episode of mentor which is speaking about myself i kind of realized that i've managed to get through adult life without really having mentors and i initially thought oh that's a bit sad isn't it and then i actually realized it's my own bloody fault because i've just been too proud stroke i don't know 
embarrassed, whatever, to actually ask and seek out help. And that's a failing of me. And I think as men in general, we don't like to ask for help. I think there's a bigger issue with that in terms of our you know, men's mental health and like that. We don't ask for help and support because we, we're either scared of the reaction or we're scared of someone saying, oh, really? You know, or taking the piss. And like, like I say, if that person has that reaction, then they're not the person you should have asked anyway, quite frankly. And that says more about them than it does about you. But my commitment through kind of doing this podcast and stuff is to actually seek out and ask people who have been doing it for a while and ask their opinion of how to, to, to make it better and trying to find my own mentors now because it's important and it's something that I haven't done. So I need to get better at it. So, and I, but I think in general, it's a, it's a male weakness. I think women are far better of doing it. I'll give you a classic example. The other day, um, I do some process serving on the side basically these days. And um, so any, any documents need serving in my river, just give me a shout. But um, I had to print off these documents which are urgent to be served. And as classic always happens, my printer just died. And I'm like, oh God. And like, my wife said to me, oh, why don't you just call up one of your friends and just print it off there? And I'm like, that'd be ridiculous. That's embarrassing having to phone up and like get legal documents printed off somebody's printer. And like while I was having everyone trying to fix the printer and swearing at it, she'd already phoned somebody up and it's like no problem at all. And like afterwards, I thought, what an idiot! Why did I make that so much harder than it needed to be? And that's 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 my problem. That's what I've got to deal with. You know, I'm 53, but you're still learning, still trying to be better. And that's the important thing: is that if you recognise you you could be better at something, then be better at it. You know, I'm just gonna chuck the light. Just, just to put the light on because it's getting darker here. Easy. but disappearing into the twilight in my river okay so are we kind of up to date with, with you in terms of uh, your life so, so where you're at now so what's your situation now in terms of like family and everything else what's the relation like these days oh look uh my daughter's a lot older now she's 17 so now i'm dealing with a very different issue to what yeah. it was before yeah i've, I've had three girls so you have my sympathy yeah <laughs> so it's a completely different facet but Look, it's it's really good. It's it's an experience, and as you said, it doesn't matter what how old you are, what age you're at, you're always learning something. And I know that I'll be learning till the day I die, or the day I finally pass. It's just if you're not open to learning, well, I think you've failed life as soon as you think you know it all. You should never 100%. think you know it all. It's not possible. And that's something that I think a lot of people do struggle with. And I think part of the issue that you've just raised is toxic masculinity. Because I think that's part of not being scared to ask as well, because you just think you're so yep. massive. And being macho or being a big dude is about knowing everything, and that's not yep. right. In fact, no. if anything, it's the exact opposite. Yep. So issues there. But look, in life, I'm obviously I'm in my mid-30s now. Still got a bit to go. Hopefully this phone goes for a bit longer, but shit, you never know what's around the corner. There yep. could be a bus around the corner waiting. You just never know, right? I just take it as it comes. I ambitions are that this firm keeps growing and that we're we established properly. Daughter obviously does well and more kids at some point, but that mm -hmm. confidence comes. I don't yep. think too much about that because I I kind of do get a bit caught up in the moment. Yep. And at this yep. moment it's society the way it is, which I'm not happy with. Yep. And it's improving the country, improving the status of I'm gonna say liberty and freedom that people have making sure people understand what they've given up for the last few years and then not doing it yep. again. That's where I'm at the moment. So really, I 
thinking about it, I wouldn't want to have a child in the last two years. And that's me personally. I'm yep. obviously different, but I wouldn't want one. It's not that you couldn't spend time with your child, but I wouldn't want to raise me. Homeschooling at a young age, I just, you're, they're losing those social skills they shouldn't have. Yes. We're not made for them. It just doesn't make sense. So these are issues I see, and I couldn't imagine someone or a family, especially if you had a few kids having to homeschool all of them and then just sitting in front of a computer to learn. It's not the way life should be. It's not right. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I think we're overcompensated where we shouldn't have, and I don't want to see those. These are the big things that I face at the moment that I see at the moment and why I do what I do. And our firm has become pretty big on the human rights front. We obviously still practice in other areas. I'll, like I said, never give up criminal law. I love running hearings and cross-examining people. That's just thing I've enjoyed doing. Yeah. We've obviously got all the other areas as well with family immigration and whatnot. But the big thing in the last few years has been rights and rights that people didn't even realise they were giving away. And that's that's where I stand at the moment, I think. Okay. And any political ambitions in the future? You could be someone no, that might be useful. No, probably too many skeletons in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> it's better not going there. One of the reasons I guess I should say everything now is so if anyone does call me up later, well, it's already on the spot. <laughs> day, just go to it and see everything anyway. It's interesting you say that, though, because this is exactly the problem with politics in Australia and probably the world, is that people like yourself, and to do degree myself, I seriously considered going into politics for this election, and I am denied. I went so far as thinking very seriously about being a, um, a candidate for the UAP and then decide not to. But it, we need to have people who've got life experience in other areas who are going into politics as opposed to career politicians just who just literally are there for their own benefit, if we're honest, and like they've never actually had a proper job in their life, or if they have, it was a long time ago. That's who needs to be in politics because we, you know, we need to have politicians that are, can relate to normal Australian people, and I just don't see much of that at the moment. No, I completely agree. I think some of the parties do try and grab some people who are connected and well-connected or have had that experience, but as a whole, that's not the case. That's not no. the case. But I just don't think these people have a life experience. I think the most important value aspect, the most important strength you can have as a politician is having a life experience. And it's very unfortunate a lot of these politicians don't have it. And the ones that tend to don't last long, but maybe it's because they don't want to put up with the bullshit that's there too, possibly. That's my theory. So they basically yeah. just move out of it. And these are the ones, as you said, that we want and need in these positions. And that's very unfortunate to say the least when you have these people of such high, who really should be regarded higher and higher than they are, not given these positions. Is that, look, a career politician knows nothing but politics. Mm. They don't know it. They don't know how to live. They don't know what you've gone through. They don't know the difficulties you've faced. And look, don't get me wrong. I think the blunder that Albanese made about Greg was funny, but it's not the be all and end all. However, it does help an issue that he didn't know with Aussie's face. But do you think Scott Morrison knows that? He might have been no, advised I mean, that the next day, but he doesn't fucking know. No, I mean, yeah, none of them know in reality. And I get that, you know, if you're the Prime Minister, there's a whole lot of stuff you need to know. I understand that. But, you know, you have to be able to appear to be a relatable person for someone to vote for you, or at least for me to vote for you anyway. You know, I have to be able to kind of relate to something about you. And, you know, I've come from the school. I like to, to wherever I've, I've worked, 
I wanted to be you know inspired by my leaders and you know wherever I haven't been inspired to be honest I've left and that's ultimately happened with the police to be honest yeah but um I don't see any inspirational leadership. I don't see any people who are really, you know, have any idea of like a, this is the direction we're going in and, you know, this is what we need to do for the next 10, 15, 20 years because politics is so temporary, because it's only for five years, four years, whatever. We just create, we're not, we're not doing anything for the long term. You know, we're not building really big uh, infrastructure projects, which we need in Australia. We're not fixing, you know, some of the major issues because, Frankly, what's the point? Because they'll be out of a job in four years' time anyway uh, and just replaced by the next lot of politicians. And if you look at the way that the Labour and the Liberals select the candidates, it's a total old boys and old girls network that, you know, they may select sometimes some candidates from left field, but they're not Joe Schmoes just wandering down the street, run the business, and someone taps on the shoulder and says, hey, how about you, um, you know, come stand for Parliament? It's you've got to be able to rub shoulders and make connections and get factions and all this kind of stuff. And frankly, who's got time for that? I know I haven't, and I've no interest in doing that whatsoever. And uh, what puts me off being a politician is the politics of it, to be honest. Yeah, it's um, I have no problem representing people, but it, I just don't, I just don't think I could put up with the bullshit. And that's what stopped me doing it. And I think probably it's the same for a lot of people. 100% because you want to represent the people for the people. You don't want to represent the people just to kiss after these people above you or the yeah. party above you or the ladies and seniors. And that's this is why I push towards independence and the miners as well because yeah. they're more likely to do that. But the unfortunate problem is if they don't have power, it is a bit of an issue because they may not be able to achieve what you need and what you want and what you deserve. And this is why if we had a lot more of these people in, it may change that rather than just a few minor faces in there. But don't get me wrong, I've heard other people say that the miners have worked for Victoria, for example. I disagree. You didn't have enough miners and you had you didn't really have miners. The Greens Party shouldn't be included. And basically you had a couple of pushovers who were pushed over. You need proper, and I still think you need a third or fourth major political force. What you said is spot on, man. I just we don't want to play that crap. I don't want to play the politics. That's not what I want. But if you're having to do that, then you really, then, unfortunately, I think being a good politician is also being a bad politician. Why do I say that? Because being a good politician to me is being there for the people and for the right reasons and yeah. being respectful of the people. But then that also makes you a bad politician because you're not as valuable to the party at hand. So... It's shit because it's a double-edged sword in that sense. And I think that's a problem and that's what you're raising here. And which yeah. is why a lot of us won't go into politics because in the end, I can make decisions now that are a bit more independent. But if I have to do it, not because my constituency wants it, exactly. because I'm being told by the party this has to happen, that's going to put me at such a large conflict that I won't be able to make that decision. I won't be able to do it. Exactly. And then next thing you know, you've been either kicked out of the party or you're, you're cross-bencher because, yeah, you're elected to represent your constituents not you know the the well i don't think you were elected to, to represent the best interests of the liberal party or labor or whoever you're, you're part of you know you should be there to represent the best interests of wherever you live those people have voted for you but that's not how the system really works now and um yeah like i say we do need a third way i think there are some interesting people coming into politics there's a guy called heston russell who's an ex i think um commando um, he's he's running the Australian Values Party, so he's it's good to see people like that who are coming into politics 
who, you know, though the ABC has tried to do a, a total um, smear job on him, um, are just decent, honest people. You've got uh, David Pocock, who's the ex-Australian rugby uh, captain. I think he's now running a party as well. So they've got some interesting people coming in. But it's almost like a boys' club that these people are not allowed to be part of. And all the time you've got this two-party carve-up in Australia, you know, it's very hard for a third force to break through because really you'd need to combine 10 minor parties into one party. And you can imagine because you've got some big personalities in those minor parties, yeah. it would just be chaos. You know, remember Pauline Hanson and um, old Clive Palmer in the same room, you know, trying to get on. It would just be a, it's just too, much, too many egos. And then that's the problem. There's, too, there's so many egos in politics that... Um, that concerns me that that would ever happen. But, you know, you live in hope. I really hope this election that both the major parties get a really bloody nose. I think the simple reality is unless Albo makes such a dog's breakfast of the campaign, it's not funny, Labour are going to win. I think that's without doubt because Morrison just made such a shitty mess of the, the last couple of years. So we're going to have a Labour government and hopefully we'll have have in the Senate a hung parliament with the, the minor parties having the balance of power there, which is at least some kind of hope. And maybe we can get, I don't know, eight, ten seats in the House of Reps of independence. That would be great. And, you know, if you have a hung parliament there, even better. But, you know, hung parliaments, although they're good in many respects, ain't too good getting anything done. You know, it's just it's just a, the administration side of things just grinds to a halt. And actually getting anything done is very, very difficult. So you end up with this total inertia in politics and nothing can be achieved by either side so i don't know how much better that is but i have great concerns about you know we're having a federal labor um and also having state labor in every state apart from new south wales that is uh that that is not a good look for australia and uh it's not a look you know that that's that's not good doesn't bode well for the future to be honest no no i completely agree this, like, I'm still late political at this time. I am kind of looking at the candidates in each constituency and hoping that the candidates raise it. And this is why I keep going towards the minor, because I don't have a preferred minor party or a preferred party at all. Really, I'm hoping the personalities, and I'm not looking at it as general standard Australian politics this time around. I'm looking at it as hoping these individuals can form a collective that's strong enough to change things rather than just the party getting the power because the simplistic view is and what would have happened traditionally is one of the parties had power and they try to fix things or do things for the next four years and see what happens the next time around. That's not what we want. That's not what no. I want. So no. I want to see these little players play a role, a big role, and hopefully affect real change. And it's it's hard, but I'm hoping that's what Australians do. But you're right, and I think you're spot on. This one is for the Labour Party to lose rather than win. And if anything, They'd be grasping jewels at the hands of victory if they, or grasping loss at the hands of victory if they really stuff up. Then it's for them to stuff it up, sadly. Okay. Well, let's, let's final question. So, um, you are the prime minister. Congratulations. Right, you won the election. Right. What three things would you do? What would be your first three orders of business? Very tough question, but I think the first thing would be an inquest or some kind of inquiry into the way each state the last two years or the mandates and directions over the last two years. That would be pretty high up on my list. And that includes the liberty that people lost. We would need to, I would love, and I think it's important, love's the wrong word, but I think it's important to know 
what people have given up and lost, especially in terms of mental health, financial well-being, all that type of stuff, the negative impact. Look, some people have done well, but I don't think a lot have. And even if people have done well financially, mentally speaking, people have suffered, and we're going to see that over the next few years. At what cost? I think, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Mental health it needs the biggest boost out of any. Look, there's always the cancers and a bunch of other health issues, and they're always going to exist, right? But maybe not always, but for the time being, mental health has been undervalued so much in these last two years, and I think it's going to become such a major issue. I think even in crime and just in life in general, we're going to see the collateral damage, the effect of these last two years. So I think an investment needs to be made right now. And there are probably two things that I'd really like to do, but I would, I think we really need to deal with the underprivileged and homeless. The reason I say that is that is also something that can fix, not fix, but it can start leading to the, dealing with the root cause of some of our issues yep. as well. I think they've been undervalued. There's a, there's a three orders out of a hell of a lot. And I, <laughs> I the reason I place importance yeah. on them is because I think they're current issues that I see, big issues that I see. And I think, for example, taxation and a bunch of these other cost of living, very important. But I, at the moment, I think that's secondary. I want to deal with all yeah. this because cost of living effectively comes from some of the measures we've had, actually, if any. 100%. I believe yeah. the lockdowns have caused an issue with cost of living because we've got for a period you would have seen petrol prices decrease and then all of a sudden demand seems to have increased and petrol prices went up dramatically and yes the war in russia and ukraine may have had something to do with it which will be all in and there's oh, look, a logistics in your problem it doesn't affect look, we don't get any oil from there so it should have no effect on the australian prices whatsoever other than the markets have obviously gone up because that you know it's a speculative market um, but it's just an excuse to hide behind immunity. Look, I agree with all three of those things. I think um, you know, the homeless one's a very interesting one. Uh, there's a really interesting guy called Michael Schellenberger who um, he was on the Rogan podcast recently. He's standing for the governorship of California. He's actually an author who wrote a book about San Francisco called San Francisco about basically the drug homeless problem there. And he's standing on the like, his major thing is he's going to fix homelessness in California, which and in, in LA alone, they reckon got like 184,000 homeless people, which just blows your head off. And what he's saying is very simply, it's not a homeless problem, it's a drug problem. And if you fix the drug problem, you'll fix the homeless problem. But you can't just give people who are homeless by choice almost who are drug addicts homes. That's not the solution. And you've got to, you've got to deal with the problem. And I, I so agree with that. It's not funny. And, uh, you know, I wish someone would take that view to homelessness in Australia because it's a reflection of the of failing in society. The fact you've got homeless people just shows that us as a society have failed somewhere. And instead of blaming the homeless people for being homeless, we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, OK, well, I've got a, I've got a part to play in this somewhere, but we don't want to take responsibility. We've got to blame someone else. So it's, it's either the person's fault or the government hasn't fixed it. You know, we, we're, we are society. We we have to fix things. Uh, and homelessness is, I don't think people really have an idea of how shit it must be to live yeah. on the streets and have no home. Because we're all sat in our homes while we're talking about this or listening to this. And you literally have nothing. You, you sleep in a sleeping bag in a doorway or something. You know, people steal your shit. You stand a chance of being beaten up, maybe raped. 
you know, he's probably got drug mental health problems. What a horrible life to lead, you know, and that we inflict that on people in this modern society where we have such abundance, it's not even funny. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It really doesn't make any sense. Mm, but it tells you our priorities are a bit wrong. It does, man. Well, look, um, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, hearing your story. It's been fascinating. And, um, you know, I think uh, hopefully people will listen to the story and know, understand a bit more about Samir. So I, I thank you for your, your openness and your honesty. And, uh, hey, I, I'd love to talk to you again soon. Definitely, man. Thanks for having me on and always appreciate it. Thanks, mate. All the best. See you, Samir. Cheers, mate. Catch up.